king and we want him now we want a king and we want him now we want a king all right welcome back to civil discourse this is not a safe space i am mike koniger your host and today i'm not joined by charles uh he got sent to the woodshed he was a bad boy and I, I had to put him on timeout. No, no, he had a meeting he had to go to. And so, uh, unfortunately, he's not able to be here with us. But I am joined by a guest co-host. And Keith, go ahead and introduce yourself. I was going to try to do the Charles voice, get the, the nice bass going. A nice baritone going. Try, try to do the uh, Charles, but it doesn't work as well. No, I'm Keith Strayovi. I am the man behind the scenes engineer person guy, but I'm filling in today. I got lots of things to say. I think we'll find out. And you're, you're also the the academic advisor to the show, so to speak, yeah. and, and you represent Sacred Heart University, who who has kindly allowed us to use their facilities, and, and we're very thankful. So we're not going to downplay your huge impact on this show. The, the listener doesn't hear you as much as we do, but you're, you're a huge and integral part. And so I, I I thought that perhaps, and and we did kind of touch on this subject in a previous episode. But I thought we could speak about uh, foreign American foreign policy specifically uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries and uh, kind of just see where this conversation would take us. We're going to be at a pretty high level for an initial conversation, but I think you you and I are going to be doing a couple episodes here in the next few weeks, and it will kind of be a setup for what we may talk about more in the next couple, three weeks. Uh, what do you think? I mean, sure. You know, of course, you talk about 20th, 21st century, but... Um, American foreign policy goes way beyond that. And uh, fortunately, you know, our country is very young and naive in the grand scheme of the world. And, and we always think about what happened in the last 50 years, whereas the rest of the world thinks about what happened in the last 1000 years. So well, that's where well, we get messed up Middle, with our foreign policy. Us, right. Middle Easterners will tell us you think in an election cycles and we that we think in millennia and, and they'd be telling the truth. Uh, you know, it's it, September 11th. Wasn't a date picked arbitrarily with a dartboard, it, 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 it harkened back to something that had happened in the 18th century. So it's, it's, and it's, it's evidence of exactly what you just said. We, we think in election cycles at best, at best, and uh, the rest of the world tends to think in long-term, of course, an old building in the United States is 200 years old. An old building in Germany is a thousand years old and yeah. an old building in China is 3000 years old. So it's all a matter of perspective, right? So anyway, um, so uh, I, I kind of want to start off, if you don't mind, and hear your thoughts. I'm going to throw this out there. Um, the American foreign policy does have a dramatic point of change that we touched in in a previous episode, and that was World War One. And I, I would like to start there, if you don't mind. And if we go backwards, that's fine. If we go forwards, I'm great with that. Sure. But when I started talking about World War One, I, I, I had mentioned the point that previously we kind of stayed out of things outside of the Americas. Uh, there was a Philippines war that we waged uh, in, in the late 1800s, but that was because of the Spanish-American war waged in Cuba and Puerto Rico. Uh, and, and of course, Philippines were also a Spanish colony at the time. Um, we, we did meddle around in Haiti quite a bit and, and really mucked that situation up. Uh, but prior to World War I, we stayed out of Europe. And so, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Right. I mean, we were mostly an isolationist country, except for, you know, again, also don't forget in the Middle East, 1800s, early 1800s, we were in Tripoli uh, in Libya with the Marine Corps. And that's and that's really where, you know, we, we left them afterwards. You know, we went and helped them out. But then 
orders from back in the States told the Marines to pull out. And that's that's where that long memory of the Middle East comes from, where they they remember when we helped them and then when we, when we left them on their own afterwards without really any explanation or any or any wind down. It was just a very sudden cutoff. Um, right, right. We, which we good, good or bad, because now we wind down everything and it takes forever to get anything done at this point because we're afraid of doing that again, it seems like. But yeah, you know, being the isolationist before World War One, um, isolationism is such a weird concept because everyone thinks about it like, oh, America first. We should just do worry about our own country. Uh, but the reality is, the world has never been an isolationist world. You know, you, you're talking about trade routes going back thousands of years. You, you've never had a civilization that's gone beyond hunter gatherer and farmer that's been an isol that that has not been uh, incorporated with the rest of the world as far as trade routes and and merchants. And, and then, of course, that leads to military and, and things like that. So it, we called ourselves isolationists as far as we didn't get involved as much, but we're still influenced by the rest of the world. And we had to be. Uh, it's just impossible not to be. So so when you say isolationist, you say you mean militarily. Correct. That, that's the, yeah, I'm thinking I'm referring specifically to military isolationist. We're not trade isolationists. We're trading heavily with European states and and with South American states. We're we're trading heavily with Argentina. Uh, we we open up the trade uh, gates to Japan in the 1860s and uh, and are trading with the Japanese. We're trading with China in, in the late 19th 19th century. Um, so so we're not trade isolationists. We we do have tariffs in place that that restrict some goods, uh, particularly. Um, agricultural goods that are produced heavily in the Americas, but, but we're not uh, closed down trading like uh, the hermit kingdom in Korea was or, or, or Japan was right. Correct. I mean, okay. we, we, we can't be because we were exporting, importing goods. I mean, that's how the whole 1800s were. <laughs> you know, the, and in the time frame you're talking, we're a net exporter. We're, we're exporting to the world. Yeah. We're exporting fur. We're exporting lumber. You know, you know, we have these vast untapped forests that we're just cutting down and setting around everywhere. Um, and then right. the fur trade was huge um, because we, again, the untapped forest had all these things that Europeans lost because they've been civilized and, and, and civilized. That's such, by the way, I'm sorry. That was such a horrible way to frame it as far as like civilized versus uncivilized because uh, and that's such a European point of view of saying like, oh, well, the Americas were not civilized. And that's BS because there were millions of people living in what is now the Americas before any European came over here. And they had civilizations that were well organized and had large cities for thousands of years before anyone came over here. So to say that the Americans were not civilized before Europeans showed up is a, a complete BS statement and just a European view to make other people feel inferior. It, it was a different kind of civilization. And, um, what happens that that really staggers them is not not Europeans showing up with guns. It, it's Europeans showing up to trade, and they bring along with them European diseases like smallpox and right. uh, and other uh, communicable diseases. And so they they come in the 1500s to the Americas and trade. And by the time settlers start coming over, a lot of the indigenous population has died from those diseases that that. Uh, those European traders came in. And, and I know we like to talk about the blankets. Uh, we didn't understand immunology and or I don't, I can't say the word. We didn't understand how these diseases were spread at the time. Right. Um, 
but it happens. It's a fact. We bring these diseases over and entire millions of people die off in the Americas. Am I pretty much hitting that right? Yeah. You, you, when, when you have a population that's used to certain diseases and you bring it to another population that has never been introduced to it. I mean, that's why if you want to right now, if you were going to take a trip to a part of Africa, you have to get immunizations before you go because you're not used to what's in that area. And that's a requirement. If you're going to go to certain parts of the world that you've never been to, you have to get immunized before traveling to those locations or they won't let you in. Absolutely. And and by the way, I took hydroxychloroquine every time I went into the tropics because malaria is still a real and deadly disease in those areas. So it's not, it's not uncommon. Africa, uh, uh, Europeans did not go into the interior of Africa because they weren't coming back out. They were going to just die from some disease that mm-hmm. they had never been exposed to. Uh, so uh, to your point, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so the indigenous people, people get knocked out. Uh, European settlers come in, uh, in some places like Pennsylvania, uh, it's, it's, they buy the land in other places. They use military force and push the native populations out of those areas. Uh, I know that's an oversimplification, but that's pretty much what happens, correct? I mean, as far as I'm, as far as my reading of history is, uh, yeah, we 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 make treaties, we break treaties because we want the land, and and we keep pushing people further and further west, so that way we can have the good the good soil and the good land and build our cities bigger and bigger, and we keep using force to put it out. But you know, going back to being military isolationist before World War One, um, part of it is to after fighting Revolutionary War and then other sub- subsequent wars in the area, you know, America was pretty broke. So to try to get involved in any other wars doesn't make any financial sense, anyways, because we don't have the money to do it. Um, I mean, there's a reason why we we fought a revolutionary war because we didn't like being taxed by a foreign government. And then we had to make taxes to pay for the war. We just fought to not pay taxes, which is a whole like we, we that's, wrap a whole, your head, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> we and wrapped your head around it in fifth grade. Like, wait, wait, I thought we didn't want to pay taxes. So now we're paying taxes because we didn't want to pay taxes. That doesn't make any sense. And, and it's one of the truths of revolution. And, and nobody talks about it. whether the revolution is righteous or not. It's a different discussion. Uh, the common man's taxes increased threefold uh, from the British to the new American government. And and that's just the way it is. And in fact, there were rebellions in regards to that, the Whiskey Rebellion being one of those that was uh, waged in the mountainous areas of, of what was the brand new United States. And, and you know, it was put down with, with force. Uh, but you're right. We, we had been through the American Civil War. I've seen new numbers that indicate the casualty rate was just astronomical with, with about a quarter of the Southern population being wiped out. Uh, a lot of the immigrant Irish population from the North was gone. Uh, uh, the Northerners had taken a huge blow. And, and I, I, I always remind people that the American South was about twice the size of Virginia population wise uh, right now, right now. Uh, so we're not talking big, giant population groups. So when they say 800,000 people died, that's a, that's a huge blow. So there was no mm-hmm. taste for wars is I think the point you were making, right? Well, especially not a foreign war. You know, we, we fought a civil war. We're still recovering from that. Um, it's just why. And, and at that point, what before, right before world war one, the country's probably fought, you're probably getting 
on a footing. We're becoming a leader in the world, but we also still want to be separate. We're we're far away from Europe, and, and really to that point too. You know, it still takes time to get across the water. It's not like today where we're like, oh, we're you know they announced uh, today when we're recording this that we're sending more. Um, of course, this would probably be true more and more times until it's over. We're may, we're sending more equipment over to uh, the Ukraine. So right. that's only going to take, you know, they're sending a lot of stuff. Depending on what they're sending, they could sit in a plane and be there in eight hours. Or they could be on a boat in three days. You know, yeah, and <laughs> it's the battlefield. It'll be on the battlefield tomorrow if that's what they want. Right. It will be. And some and, of it's going to take a week because it needs training, whatever, what, depending on what it is and all that stuff. But that's a different story. But supply lines, supply lines today are almost instantaneous within within a 24 hour cycle, whereas supply lines back then were days and weeks and months. Yeah. And so once you'd lost your supply lines, you either had to live off the land or whatever. The other thing that I think happens that we don't ever really think hard about is the generation that fought the Civil War in both the North and the South is now in power. They are running the country and they have no taste for war. The the impacts of that war. On, on military veterans from that war are huge. You have a, a very large population of veterans, just like today, that are essentially homeless and using the drugs of choice from the time, predominantly alcohol and opiates, uh, which were both very plentiful. And, and I, if you go back and read first-person accounts from post-Civil War America, particularly out West, there are a lot of accounts of, of drug addicts, uh, veterans who were drug addicts that were dealing with their what we now know is PTSD. They didn't, they didn't know what it was. Shell shock. Yes. Sorry. Shell Shell shock is a world war one term. Sorry. One term. (laughs) Uh, But, but you know, battle fatigue is another one. I think battle fatigue was the one that they used in the civil war. And and so, you know, you have these folks and they don't want to fight another one unless it's easy, like the Spanish American war, right? They'll do that, but they're not, they're not going to do any of the major ones, but there is a push from, from the former Whigs that are now known as the Republicans to get more involved in those, um, those strategic campaigns. And then the progressive movement is kind of born out of that Whig party that became the Republicans. I know that's going to mess with a lot of people's heads. And so the progressive movement comes out and they talk about, social engineering for the betterment and the advancement of humankind, um, which is why I really wanted to focus in on this early 20th century time period. And uh, am I hitting you, you with anything you're not fully aware of? <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I totally knew that the parties flop sides at one point. Well, and they <laughs> flop sides all the time. People yeah. don't see it, but, 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 you hey, know, uh, again, we look in short term, we don't think about the long term. If you go back again, was it 60 years? I think it is, you know, Republican party, is the more progressive party and the democratic party is more conservative. And the populist party back then is the democratic party. And most would, many would argue that Donald Trump was a populist president from the Republican party. So those things, those things flip flop constantly, but in the early 20th century, that progressive movement is really not drawn across party lines quite yet. And so you have a progressive Republican in uh, Teddy Roosevelt and you have a progressive Democrat in Woodrow Wilson uh, you have the uh, several others. Taft is is more of a historical Republican, anti-war Republican. Uh, uh, well, I think that also goes to you know part of it too is in today's modern world because of the twenty-four hour news cycle, everything is instantaneous, um, and, and people are worried about that election cycle, as you mentioned in a previous episode, or, or this one. I've it's all the time. I feel like um, you. Know, people have to be more hardline, more firm on stances versus you go back 
a generation, two generations when we didn't have this 24 hour news cycle and not access like we do now where you get a newspaper once a day, maybe once a week, depending on where you are, what you subscribe to. Uh, people that are politicians could be they could have varying views. They could be more gray instead of black and white, and they could agree on things and disagree on things from other parties and get along and and talk these things out over drinks and over beer and all this stuff. Uh, we don't allow that today anymore because we want everything instantaneous and we hold our politicians accountable almost instantaneously before anything has even happened. So we can't have that liberal uh, Republican or the conservative Democrat because they would get ousted by their own party today. Well, and, and there's there's a very diverse school of opinion within the Democratic Party uh, where you have a, a Woodrow Wilson and then you have a William Jennings Bryant, who is certainly a military isolationist. Uh, but but on fiscal policy, he's very progressive. Uh, you know, I would not crucify uh, the working man on a cross of gold uh, who wanted to remove the American currency from a gold standard to a silver standard because he thought it was better for the working man. You have a, a President McKinley who, who's uh, not a progressive, but he he's not a uh, an old school uh, Democratic Republican either. So you know, the, to your point, the political landscape is very diverse at this point, and they're not just two schools of thought. They're, they're multiple schools of thoughts, and, and a Southern Democrat and a Northern Democrat don't see eye to eye on a whole lot, do they? No. <laughs> <laughs> or a Western Democrat versus an Eastern Democrat. Again, very different ideas. Uh, and same for Republican. I'm just picking on Democrats because uh, I, I'm always intrigued by William Jennings Bryant, who, who I find to be a very interesting man. Um, ne- never elected president, but he ran that party. <laughs> so uh, uh, lost twice, if I remember correctly, uh, to McKinley and then uh, to Roosevelt, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly. And let's be honest, uh, most of the time, a president's main role as the cheerleader and the figurehead of the country itself. The, the real work still gets done in legislation between uh, the houses of Congress. And that's where most of the grunt work is done. And the president tries to set an agenda, pushes the country forward in different directions, but their power is limited as far as that. They're more of the, the, the outreach being hand of the government where they can talk to foreign leaders and do policy. They do a lot of good work that way. But as far as law goes, it's still the, the Congress that does most of that work. Absolutely. And in that time, prior to the imperial presidency, even more so, uh, you know, uh, you were much better off being a Henry Clay in, in eight and 19th century America or a Henry Cabot Lodge in 20th century America, where you were able to influence what was happening in the legislative branch than you were being president. You had a lot more power. Um, and and uh, because there was no there were executive orders, but not to the degree we see them today. And executive orders usually were very specific to how they were going to enact a law. It wasn't to circumvent a law that had already been passed. So, um, yeah, your your point is well-spoken. And where the power of a Woodrow Wilson comes in is not only does he get swept into the presidency, but his party gets swept in as well. He brings a whole lot of fellow progressives into the legislative branch. And you're thinking about this. <laughs> so uh, he was a good spokesman, basically. He campaigned well for his party, if that makes sense. It does. No, it does. Um, sorry. I th- my, I'm always, when, you, when you're talking, I'm always thinking about three things at once in my head. And I'm always like, which one do I talk about next? <laughs> you, you can talk about all three and I'll <laughs> shut up. <laughs> no, I mean, so 
we'll you know so now we we're, we're getting up to the now involvement in the world policies foreign policy so you started talking about foreign policy and my head immediately went to the military aspect of foreign policy and i know that's kind of not accurate because there's a lot more into it than just military involvement and my brain is basically doing what most people's brain do is the when you think about how the world and how we engage with the world is military but we spend so much time and effort and energy in one giving just countries money just take here here's money for whatever and i know i always see like facebook posts of like why are we spending so much money over here instead of investing in our own people over here and i always want to just reach through the screen and grab them by the neck it's like so we don't go to war <laughs> it's like you don't realize how much I, I in my opinion anyways a lot of our foreign policy is to try to just keep peace you know part of it is you know we're helping people with hunger we're helping people over here with this thing but a lot of it is a balancing act of how can we not cause a war to happen somewhere because that throws things more out of balance than anything else. As we see with the war in Ukraine, you know, gas prices and inflation are, are skyrocketing here in America. We're not even involved with the war, but Ukraine is one of the lar uh, world's largest exporters. Uh, excuse me, zip, zip, cut all that out. Largest exporters of wheat. And you, you take that. That's going to cause problems. Plus, Russia is a large exporter of oil. And being that we are blackballing their oil exports, basically, that's causing oil prices to go up. So a war that we're not even involved with is causing ramifications to us. And that's Absolutely. where people, I think, and that's where the isolationist doesn't work because you can't be an isolationist because even if you're not involved with it, it still affects you in this global economy that we all live in, whether you want to live in it or not, I don't care what your political views are. The reality is, unless you are going to go be a homesteader in the middle of the woods and do everything on your own, and even there, you're still relying on buying materials and, and, and things from stores that probably still dealt and traded with people elsewhere. So you, it's impossible to be a complete isolationist, period. Well, I, I think that's why the term isolationist is not really a, a, a I'm not saying it's invalid. It's not an appropriate term. Uh, we're talking, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm come from a very military isolationist uh, view. I don't think we should be involved. I don't think we should pick sides. I, I generally, in, in a lot of these, particularly European struggles, you pick a side, you picked wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's really is, uh, you know, we can talk about bad guy, Russia. Uh, there's bad guy Ukraine too. And, and so, and, and there were crimes on both sides prior to this war and during this war. Uh, now Ukraine are the defenders and the Ukraine people are the victims. I, I don't think anyone's going to argue otherwise, but uh, Russia was provoked to some degree, rightfully or wrongfully. So, uh, and to pick a side is probably, probably not the best move. And when we become the, when we declare who's going to win this war, whether we enter militarily or not, we are no longer isolationists, right? Well, I think we already declared who we clearly are backing as a country, being that we're giving military support via equipment to the Ukraine and other European NATO countries are, are also giving things right. in. And it's a, and again, it's a very delicate act like, okay, we're going to give you support this way. But as soon as the troops hit the ground, it changes everything. You know, it's one thing to hand over some gear and some rocket launchers and things like that. 
if we were to send troops ourselves to go fight in this, now we are actively at war with Russia, which is a huge complication, especially being Russia being the other mega power, one of the other mega powers that has nuclear weapons in its arsenal. Um, I think that's a bear we are afraid to poke. And rightfully so, because Putin, we don't know what he's thinking. We don't know what he's capable of, what he, what he would actually do. Um, and it, it's best to err on the side of caution in that regard. At some point, this obviously, well, I was going to say, obviously the war will resolve, but that's not true at all, because some wars last for hundreds of years. Afghanistan, <laughs> Afghanistan lasted for decades. And, and uh if you go back in history to when the Russians entered Afghanistan as the beginning of that war, yeah, uh, that's 1980 or 79. Uh, that's a long time for a war. So, so, and you made the comment about the hundred years war between uh, France and England. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's a real thing. And, and so you're absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, the, the problem with sending materials into a war zone like that is you don't know where they're going to end up. They may end up in the black market in Chechnya. Well, you, you know, you speak about the war uh, with Russia and Afghanistan starting in the 80s, and we gave money to who? I mean, we gave uh, weapons to who? The Afghans. We call them uh, the Mahajadeen, <laughs> and they were the freedom fighters of Afghanistan who were fighting our enemy, Russia, by the way, the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. And, and, you know, we armed Osama bin Laden. Exactly. And we armed uh, a whole lot of other folks, by the way. Not all of them were bad folks, uh, and, and but they were our freedom fighters. and. Uh, we did the same thing in Iraq where, where we armed Iraq to fight Iran because Iran was our bad guy. Uh, and we sent them chemical weapons to use against Iran. Um, and, you know, again, you never know where these weapons are going to end up. And uh, I, I think in a cash poor society like Ukraine and, and on a European standard, they are relatively cash poor. Uh, we don't know where those weapons go. Do they go to the battlefield? Do they go to the black market? Do they go to some other uh, destabilized region in the world. And, and that's always the struggle with these foreign policies. And, and it brings me back, I'm, I'm going to circle this back to World War I, where the progressives decided that World War I was a righteous cause, and, and I'm not making this up, and that the way to progress our society is to have that war to end all wars and, and to really help man evolve, humankind evolve to another level, right? Well, I mean, that... The European mentality going into that was, you know, the Europeans are used to uh, fighting each other. They always had battles against each other. And it was always a noble thing to be on the battlefield. But up until that point, there was no such thing as a machine gun or, right. or a semi-automatic rifle um, or a tank or, or mustard gas. Or, or aircraft. And or, so all those things evolved during World War One. Now, now, you know, the argument is, was the American Civil War the first modern war? Was the Boer War the first modern war? You know, I, I hear this argument in military circles all, all the time. You know, the Civil War, because of the rifle muskets, uh, rifle rifle barrels and, and rifles uh, changed the range of firepower. Uh, but they were still using uh, 18th century tactics on the battlefield. You're also using like, muskets in the Civil War, so you can't actually aim them the way you can right. a rifle. Right. So, you know, and that that's one argument. The Boer War, of course, because now you have repeating firearms uh, and, and Gatling guns and Gatling guns show up at the end of the American Civil War. That's true. Yes. And, but but, but the Gatling guns in the, the end of the Civil War, aren't those those are still hand cranked? Those are hand cranked. Um, and they're but large. The, yes. But but still, they can lay down some serious fire. Oh, for yes. sure. 
now you have belt-fed machine guns in, in World War One, where they can lay down hundreds of rounds uh, very quickly. And so the defense to that, of course, is digging in. And once you're dug in, then we throw out the chemical warfare, uh, mustard gas, and uh, other forms of phosgene gas. And then we have aircraft that can drop bombs into the trenches. And so now, you know, we've really complicated things in this war to end all war to better society, by the way. We're going to better humankind. And I check me out on this. I'm not fibbing. That's what they said we were doing. It's it, it, you're. You're not wrong because I took history class too. <laughs> and that, that's what they talked about. And again, it was a noble thing for the Europeans to fight each other for whatever reason um, and have that one last great war. And and in this ongoing war that was going on longer than they expected, you know, now they're now Great Britain's taking troops from Australia to bring them up to the war. Uh, and then, of course, we finally get involved with it as well. Uh, it's just the devastation of France during that time too, you know, uh, the, the fact that, you know, basically what, what was the age range? Like every man between, between like the ages of 16 and 50 or something like that is it's forget the exact range, but almost every male in that age range was killed during the war. It, it, the, the devastation about one, one, one quarter to one fifth of, of every population between 15 and 50 was gone. Yes. Uh, there were women told after the war, you will never marry because there are not enough husbands for you. In, in, in English society, German society, uh, Russian society, across the board, French society, they were all told. Amer America's losses in that war, while, while significant, were, were nothing compared to what the European powers suffered from. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's a, a saw, old saw, amongst some of the colonial power, colonial uh, uh, powers that, that were entered in the war, Australians and Canadians, et cetera. Uh, you know, the English will fight until the last Canadian and Australian is dead. It's not a fair <laughs> assessment of what happened, but it is a feeling that they felt in that war uh, where they, they, they were lobbed against the, the hardest and most uh, secure locations on the battlefield. Whereas uh, English troops were, were fighting in the quote softer. Of course, none of it was soft. None, of, none no. of it was soft, but that was the perception from those colonial uh, soldiers. Um, and, and then you have the fact that the British Navy has blockaded Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the only response that they have to that are U-boats. And you have Mr. Mr. Wilson saying, if you use your U-boats, uh, we're going to come into this war. And we don't want you using U-boats. And the Germans are saying, but we're starving to death. And so Wilson is trying to influence the outcome uh, at a very serious price. Right. And that's, and that's the fine line that a leader has to balance. And it's, it's a hard decision to say, cause you, you see the rest of the world fighting this people from, like you said, Canadians right North of our border going over there to fight in the war, Australians from around the other side of the world world going over there to fight. And we're sitting on the sidelines going, well, it's not really our war. But if you do this one thing, we'll, we'll come into it. And I think for that, and again, it happens in World War II, we're sitting on the sideline waiting for a line to be crossed, and we almost make that line. And we say, here's the line. If you cross the line, then we'll go. But we're going to make where that line is. And on a political standpoint, it's a way for the population to get behind you. Because if 
we didn't make that line, if Wilson didn't say this is the line and he just said, hey, we're going to war now, there were the morale of soldiers going over there and the country would not be behind that versus if you go, we're going to do something right and just here where, you know, if you continue to if you use U-boats and you uh, attack civilian ships and this, that and the other thing, and this is the line and then you betray that line after I told you that's our line, then we're justified going in. And that's and you see that again in World War Two, we do the same, you know, we stay in the sidelines until Pearl Harbor happens, even though secretly in the background, they're waiting to go into the war. Uh, but they needed that one event to get the country behind the war effort. So that way you actually had people volunteering to sign up to go. And you, you, you didn't need to draft them. They wanted to go to it. Right, right. And, and Wilson, Wilson gets reelected on an anti-war platform and, and promises he won't. Uh, put U.S. soldiers on the ground in Europe. Uh, he, he is elected on that, re-elected on that platform in a three-way race uh, where the opposition essentially split between the other two candidates. Uh, I, I think he had a plurality. I don't think he had a majority. In fact, I know he didn't have a majority. He had a plurality of the vote. And and by the way, a, a ardent racist, ardent racist, horribly racist man. Uh, and, and so he... Um, he gets reelected and then he's angling to get American boots on the ground in Europe for this progressive agenda that he has eloquently stated throughout his writings, right? He, he's been writing about this for years that we need to be more model, modeled after the British. The British have a system that really works well for them. Uh, the House of Lords is, is where the great ideas come from. And, and we really need a ruling class here in America. I mean, if you read Wilson, I'm not exaggerating. That's essentially what he's saying. Yeah, let's, uh, we, we, I, didn't we fight a war so we couldn't be like the British? I thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> didn't we fight a war to not be like the British? Yeah. Well, you know, we we seem to bail them out an awful lot for a country we rebelled against. But that's another, well, they would argue that I just overstated. And that's, we kissed and made up since then, I guess. Yeah. Here's the thing I see, and this is just Mike's analysis, and I don't think it's unique to me. I think other other folks have said this. We are really looking to take over the British Empire. I, I really get the impression that Wilson and the early 20th century progressives, and remember, this is not Republicans or Democrats, they're in both parties. They really want to be the, the successor to the British Empire. What say you? I hadn't really thought about it that much, but if you look at, historically speaking, you know, obviously the British art empire starts dying off and, and it's such a, you know, to call it an empire, the, it's all ruled from this tiny little island northern europe but everything right. else is just held together and and they're sending how many troops can you have in that one island to send out to control india and australia and parts of africa like how long does that work for in an ever-growing world um it works for a while but as it, as we see as history has already shown us it does not last um whereas america we're we have a very large landmass, which means we have great land for more and more citizens to be born and grown that we would be able to actually have enough soldiers to do that now i'm not saying it's a good idea i'm just saying it would, more realistically with a larger uh, land base and resources than the british do it, it makes more sense like you said like we said uh, a couple minutes ago we're exporting lumber for other people like to britain to build their ships and, yes or we yes. could be keeping that lumber to build our own ships and we could have our own armada 
and do things like that or now steel of course and, and we're exporting other things at the, and we're war one that caused um some serious issues we we are exporting money we are exporting gold to support the british and french war effort and american bankers have heavily invested in the british and french and they can't afford for the british and french to sue for an equitable peace they need reparations they need to make money off their money and, and so now we have the that that banking pressure on our political uh, parties and, and particularly on our government to make sure that the British and the French prevail. And of course, it's been a stalemate for several years. So we're looking at this early 20th century foreign policy that that is sold as a um, way for humankind to evolve into a, a peaceful society, but. You always follow the money trail, don't you? It's, it, there's always someone trying to make a buck, isn't there? Yeah, there no, is. No matter what, every every conflict, there's always somebody making a buck. Because, you know, stuff's not cheap, obviously. It's, it's more expensive these days, too, you know. Um, but it's very profitable. War is profitable for certain people because oh, it is. It someone's is. always got to sell the goods. Someone's always got to buy them. And there's always a middleman somewhere that's willing to make that deal. And they don't care who they're dealing with. And we see it right now in our own country where, yes, there is an oil shortage. And when supplies are in short, then you can increase your profit margin. And, and there's a, a reason to do that is to keep people from hoarding, uh, whether you agree or not. That is a reason people do it. it we're going to raise the price so everybody doesn't run on gasoline at the pump. It, it is more expensive. You know, oil went from being $30 a barrel at the beginning of the Biden administration to $130 a barrel right now. So, so there is a real reason why the price of gas has gone up. But oil companies also know they have to raise the price so that it's not flying out of the tanks and emptying tanks and causing us to have complete no gas at all. Uh, so, uh, and, and so in that case, the prior case, we've invested heavily in France. We've invested heavily in England. We want to make sure they win. Uh, we have stronger economic ties to those two countries than we do Germany. Uh, Germany has only been united as a country for about 30 years at that point, 30, 40 years at that point. Uh, Germany has embarrassed France on the battlefield in, in the Franco-Prussian War pretty badly. They, they, they soundly thrashed them, so to speak, uh, took the Sudetenland back from France and uh, 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 the other countries. And the I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the... Uh, region in northern france that's been fought over multiple times keith help me out here. um i'm gonna i'm just gonna look it up <laughs> yeah we can edit this piece out no we keep everything in oh. <laughs> i'm fine with that uh, so you know and so that, that right now that's under german control um uh, and france wants it back you know it's been france as long as it had been germany so um uh, oh the uh, the rhineland yeah so, well, See. south of the Rhineland Palatate yeah. across the river, which I can't remember what they call that. But yes, yes. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where we're, we, we, we want France and England to win. And, and let's be fair, culturally, they're much closer to us. But there's a, a competing concern in that most white Americans in this time frame trace their lineage back to Germany. Oh, yeah. You mean, you, you mean things like Anheuser-Busch and, and Pabst and, and Yingling are, are German? Yes. I had no and, idea. So Pennsylvania, Missouri, uh, New York. Milwaukee. Uh, yeah, a lot of these states have very large German populations. There is a, a German, there is a population of Americans that think if we're going to go in the war, we should be going in on the sides of their 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 grandfather's countries. Uh, and so 
Um, you know, that that's that's a huge push. So Wilson comes up with some reasons not to. The sinking of the Lusitania comes to mind. And, of course, that communique that goes to the Mexican government, supposedly. Uh, don't know how true they are. But, hey, Mexico, if you side with us, we'll give you back Texas. That's supposedly yeah. the Obviously, <laughs> that's that went really well. <laughs> Yeah, supposedly that's what the Germans said. And of course, Mexico has their own issues. They have a Cristero war going on right then uh, in Mexico, right in the same time frame where, where you know, the, the Catholic Church is being repressed uh, by the civil authorities and the Cristeros are saying, I don't think so. And, and they're fighting their own war. They're probably not terribly interested in helping Germany out in that time frame. Uh, but the heck with facts. Again, having becomes- a, getting involved in the war over... Seas as we, we we said supply chain back then you you're know, talking six days if you're going from Mexico to Europe that's going to be six seven days to get over there uh, right. at least and and they have their own home problems they're not going to enter this war but right. we you know it, it, it's a nice vehicle to say hey hey America Germany's knocking on your back door gee does that happen anymore right <laughs> there's but, an invasion coming from the south gee. Haven't heard that language, have we? Yeah. And, and we may want to do something about this. We need to go over there. And I, they they gave the, the wonderful name to the Germans, the Huns. We need to beat the Hun. And so that that 150 or 40, 40 some year policy of not getting involved in European conflicts ends. And then the modern age of uh, form, American foreign policy starts. Where were we? We, we are now involved with everything. Right. <laughs> Nothing is the off the table. We are the world's policemen. We didn't learn the lesson from the British. We're not only the world's policemen, we're also the world's bank. We are. Because we are everything bank. is based off of the U.S. dollar. It is. And, and so the price of oil, oil is bought and paid for with dollars. Uh, most most commodities are bought and, and paid for with dollars. There, there's a uh, reason the- for that. I heard about recently. It's a fascinating story. Not for today. <laughs> But there, were, yeah. there, there was a brilliant banker who was uh, they were writing policy and he was leaving in like he put the term for whatever the, we were based on at the time. He's like, but he left left it blank like, oh, what? he's like, you know, like the dollar. And they just left it in there and like people signed it as it was. And the U.S. dollar became the basis for everything else because of that policy and just well, no one's it, ever changed it. <laughs> and, and, and the U.S. has been the the largest has had the largest GDP in the world. For, for a significant amount of time yes. now, uh, since basically 1945, the U.S. has been the economic power of the world. It, it vied back and forth from 1900 to 1945, but in post-World War II world, the U.S. is the economic power. I know everyone thinks China is. No. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. They have all, um, they, I, the China has all our debt, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when, when we open the spigot, we are a net exporter of commodities like oil. We're still a net exporter of timber and other natural resources. We're net net exporter of fossil fuels. Uh, we 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 can produce when we desire uh, to do so. Uh, we we allow other factors to get involved in those decisions. Not bad or good. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just saying we do. Uh, but uh, yes, we're still an economic power because we're one of the most fertile nations on earth. And, and there's there's more green in America than anywhere else. Uh, let's be perfectly the Americas. We should probably yeah, say the, the Americas, well, not just the United yeah. States. The Americas. No, the Americas. You know, Canada sits on huge reserves of timber and water, fresh water, pure fresh water, uh, as, as well as some oil and other natural resources. 
uh, or different kinds of ore and fossil fuels. Um, Mexico is sitting on huge, huge, huge oil reserves. Uh, I mean, the Americas are incredibly uh, blessed with with um, uh, resources, and consequently, it does benefit Europe and Asia and others to get the Americas involved in their petty family squabbles that lead to major wars. You said this earlier. Europe Europeans like to fight, and, and I think that that falls on deaf ears because most folks know. Europe from 1945 until 2022, where other than Bosnia, Herzegovina, and some dust-ups in, in former Eastern Bloc countries, Europe's very peaceful in that time frame. Yeah, in the modern age, you know, like I said, people have kissed made up. Uh, they fought two big world wars, and they don't want to do it again at this point. So you have, you know, countries like Great Britain and France who were bitter enemies for centuries that are no longer bitter enemies. Uh, uh, Germans, Germans crossed into France and Frenchmen crossed into Germany every day to go to work. And, right. and uh, yeah, we have this thing called the European Union, which is basically, it, if you if you were to try to explain it to an alien that came to Earth, you'd be like, well, you know how the United States is a bunch of states, which are independent governments, but then we have one big government that rules everything. The European Union are a bunch of countries that has one big thing that controls all their currency on top of it. So it's almost the same thing, but different. <laughs> Well, that's, well, and there's a lot the more initial... to it than that, obviously, but that's kind of like they're just a bunch of states. And size wise, you know, we have states that are bigger than a lot of their countries. We, we do. <laughs> and, and in the original design, we were supposed to very much operate as the European Union was designed to operate, where most of the decisions were made at the state level and very little was made at the 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 country level. Uh, the federal level. Well, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't have a federal currency until after the Civil War. Right, right. And, and so banks issued their own currency. Yep. Uh, and, and we didn't have a, a, we had two national banks that essentially had failed, uh, but we didn't have the Federal Reserve until 1913. So uh, we didn't have the, that, that's another part of the foreign policy, though. We didn't have the vehicle to fund foreign policy until 1913. Right, because you'd have to ask individual banks to put up the money and not a government. There was no government bank to just say, here's some money to go do this thing over here. Well, there's a dramatic change that happens in this country in 1913, Keith. Uh, Federal Reserve is founded in 1913. Woodrow Wilson's elected in 1913. Direct election of senators happens in 1913. And believe it or not, the very first immigration laws not involving Chinese immigrants are passed in 1913. That's a lot uh, of there stuff. was the Anti-Chinese Exclusion Act of 1870-something, I can't remember, but other, which was hard, by the way, I'm not, I'm not dismissing um, it, but there are whole scale immigration laws passed in this country in 1913, particularly to control Southern European immigrants. Isn't that interesting? Italians. Oh, yeah. Italians. People forget that Italians were not white Europeans. No, and, and Irishmen weren't either. So, no. so they're trying to control the influx of Irish and, and Italians. Uh, and, and so... Uh, which, by the way, didn't work. <laughs> but that's another story for another yeah. time. Uh, but yeah, so 1913 is a pivotal change. And and I, I really say that 1913 is the birth of modern American foreign policy. Uh, how would you respond to that? You know, well, I, I didn't realize all that stuff happened the same year. But, you know, considering that, that's when all that stuff happens. And, you know, it, like you said, before that kind of, hey, immigration, we, we just wanted people to come to the country to build the ranks. Um, 
And it's always funny. I always think it's funny when we talk about immigration policy now. I'm like, do you not remember how this country was formed? We just let everybody in. So we had people. And now you're saying no one can come in when people talk about it. Well, obviously, it's not just no one. They want certain people coming in. Hey, maybe we should talk about immigration in a future episode because oh. uh, I think we could, we could go down this. There, there, it, this, this, I, and, and I'm just gonna. And I think we should probably end with this comment, but I'll give you some food for thought. Immigration policies in the United States are not built for the reasons we're told they're built. No, they are, absolutely not. They are literally built to come to, to work on some social engineering issues, and uh, you know, there, there, there's very limited immigration from very specific countries. Uh, I remember I, I was involved in some immigration work in my role in the military. Uh, where we only allowed double digit numbers of Irish immigrants in this country during the troubles, during the troubles in Ireland. And, uh, and there was a reason why that happened. And so, uh, and, and same thing with Hispanic immigrants and, and Arab immigrants or Middle Eastern immigrants and, and other groups. They're very, and this, this discriminatory immigration policies have been going on since anti-exclusion Chinese act of my 18. I wish I could remember the date, but anyway, um, you know, that's been going on a long time where, where we're trying to control who comes in, not uh, how many come in. And, and that's really what we're looking at here is, is that, and, and immigrants generally on a, on a, on 1882. Economic- 1882. Thank you. You're welcome. Immigrants generally on an economic level are givers, not takers. They're, they're producers. Um, and and if you doubt that, go look at any construction site in America. You know, it, it, you're, I don't doubt it at all. First of all, because I, I I listen to I the research. Not only are they hard workers, but even illegal immigrants pay taxes. Illegal meaning undocumented. Uh, yes. 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 That, again, a horrible term. Illegal in the sense no, that I, they're I, not I, I, legally here, not. according to the law. <laughs> right. Undocumented workers are actually still paying taxes to the government. They're paying more taxes than Elon Musk. They're, they're generally producers <laughs> and they're generally contributing more to the economy than they're taking. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is a matter of uh, uh, there is a criminal element with any group of immigrants. Uh, and if you don't believe me, we can talk about the 1920s and Italian mobs. There's a, <laughs> there's a criminal element in any group. You know, whether it's an immigrant or suburbs or or white collar, there's always criminals. You're not going to get rid of criminals. And I'm not going to deny an entire group of people coming in because 5% might be bad. Of course not. I think and I do think there are there is always an immigrant class that is attracted by crime, regardless of what nation they immigrate from. And they do disproportionately commit crimes in their time of settling into the United States. There was an Irish mob, too. Don't forget so, and I'm sure there was a German mob. So anyway, well, I, it's, I, it's I, funny what happens when you don't accept them into your culture. It's a, it's almost as though because you segregate against them or, or do policy against a certain group, they go to crime for some reason. It's weird how that, like you said, we mentioned Italians were, you know, like I said, they weren't considered white when they came over. They were a lesser class citizen. And it's weird how they turned to crime. I, I think that happens in any oppressed group. The yeah. Irish probably being one of the most yeah. oppressed groups in the world have, have turned to crime for many years because of that. Uh, but again, a majority of Irish people are just good, hardworking folks doing honest living. It's a very small minority committing those acts. Um, and, and we know that from the troubles, most Irish just wanted the troubles to end in Ireland. 
They didn't yeah. want any part of it. It was a small group that were, were committing those atrocities against one another and the British soldiers, by the way. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is an outcake. But we've, we've gone down the immigration path, which we're going to hold on to, Keith. Sorry, we I can see paths. It's just so easy to go down it. We're, we're, yeah. we're probably out of time now. And so I, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up. If you have any final words, now is your chance to get those in. So um, foreign policy, foreign policy is complicated and nuanced and you can't be for or against it because it's just is something that has to exist in the world. We have to interact with other countries. We have to have some sort of policy to interact with the rest of the world. It's not like we can, we cannot be an isolationist. Uh, we cannot just say close the borders, only America, because we will suffer as a country, as individuals, as a group. If we do that, we have to be a part of a collective of the world because that's just the reality of how the world works. So we have to have foreign policy, whether you understand all of it or agree with all of it. it you know, there's a lot I agree with. There's a lot I don't agree with. And you shouldn't agree or disagree with everything. That's 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 how life works. You should like some things and you should not like other things. And we keep fighting for the things that we think are the right things uh, and how we act interact with the world and there there's a very long statement about how foreign policy is <laughs> and i think we're going to continue this discussion where i'm going to continue for a, a a isolationist military policy with a free trade policy across the world which uh one of our forefathers said uh, uh free trade with all and entangling alliances with none is the way he summarized it so um I think we're going to talk next time about the Middle East, Keith. So get ready and, and do your research and we'll discuss some things about the Middle East. And I have some facts I'll throw at you that I think you'll find quite interesting. Uh, but in the interim, I would like to thank you, Keith Zdrojevi, for, for not only being my co-host this week and filling in for the wonderful and amazing Charles Frederick Sacrese in his big baritone voice. Uh, but for everything you do to support this, I'd like to thank Sacred Heart University, the School of Communication and the Arts, Dr. Jim Castengay. Uh, did I say that right? Yes. And then my 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 uh, co-member uh, of the Lazarus Trio, Carl Groves, for the music that you hear on both sides of the show. And I hope everyone enjoyed a little bit of a change of pace and join us next time when we talk about that big hot button issue that just tends to separate people middle east but i'm pretty sure that we can do it civilly so until next time be kind to one another have a good day